Schizophrenia is a serious mental disorder that affects the ability to think and act clearly. People diagnosed with this debilitating condition have difficulty knowing what's real and what isn't, and they struggle with disorganized thinking. For families, caring for a loved one with schizophrenia can require adjustments that are both dramatic and life-changing, and the fallout can be devastating. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today, we hear a first-hand account of a family dealing with this very issue. Your questions for our guests are welcome to when you email route51 at wpr.org anytime during today's program. Our guest today is a retired public defender and prosecutor from Stevens Point. His first jury trial took place before he became a lawyer. Kenneth Farmer was just 19 when he was a witness at his brother's civil commitment proceeding. Though he has plenty of professional experience dealing with schizophrenia, it is his personal one that compelled him to write his latest book called Lee. It chronicles his brother's spiral into paranoid schizophrenia and the fallout for his family. Ken, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Ken, this is not your first book. It's not even your second book. In the preface to Lee, you say it was very difficult for you to make this decision to even write this. So what left you feeling so conflicted and what persuaded you to finally put this into words? Well, um, my, my mother was against um, committing my brother uh, to the day she died. And uh, I think that uh, I felt like if I wrote the book, I would be exposing my family. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, there was a stigma that I was still feeling over that, not only because of my mother, but in general, the embarrassment about what had happened to our family. And I thought that, well, you know, maybe someday I'll see my mother again. I don't know if there's an afterlife, but mm-hmm. if I if I saw her, I would be condemned by her for having come forward about this. Well, you said in your book that your mother had had this feeling that committing him would quote ruin him. I mean that that phrase that would ruin him. Right. How how prevalent are those kinds of feelings? Do you think with other families who are dealing with this very same thing, that feelings of shame, the feelings of embarrassment. Well, that's, you know, something that's, you know, occurs just about in every family that deals with this. Um, you know, there, there are certain patterns of dysfunction that families engage in when it comes to this disease that are pretty patterned things. Um, one of the things that occurs is anger, perhaps, by some family members that the person that has the disease is taking all up the money and up the attention mm-hmm. that they should have. I had that. Um, patterns, another pattern is where somebody tries to compensate and like be the family hero like you would in, in any dysfunctional family, like an alcoholic's family or whatever. Um, But one of the major things is is stigma. It's the embarrassment about it. And I can't say that I'm proud of the way I dealt with my brother at times. Um, Because of that stigma, I was so embarrassed about the way he was. I mean, literally there are times where I would walk on the other side of the street rather than, than talk to him if I saw him in public. Given all of that, given those feelings, how did you turn that around and and finally start writing. Well, I was um, at a retirement party for my original boss named Dan, Dan Goyette. Dan was the head public defender in Louisville, Kentucky, where I worked right after law school. 
and he was there for 40 years, and he retired, and um, I said, hey, let's have lunch sometime. He's originally from Milwaukee, and so we met several months later for lunch in Milwaukee, and I described, I had written two books already, two fictional accounts dealing with criminal justice, and he, um, you know, I I was considering a third book, and he says, and I happened to mention that I had this brother who was schizophrenic, and he didn't know that, and I never told him, and Dan is just an expert in that area of law, um, dealing with severe cases involving mental illness, and he said, you know what, you should write a book about your brother, and then I said, no, I can't do that, and I explained to him about my mom and everything, but he was the one that encouraged me to do to do that and has backed me up at every every stage of, of this process. How long did the two of you work together? Oh, five years in Louisville, but I knew him after that. So you worked together for five years, and he is an expert on this kind of thing, and, uh, and yes. you didn't tell him. I didn't tell him, and in fact, I did things that were directly related to my brother's condition. There was a time where I was assigned the mental health unit where I defended people like my brother. Wow which was a different system, um, 500 miles away, mm-hmm. and I was able to separate it in my mind. And eventually, I came back to Wisconsin, and I got a job as a prosecutor, in, for, for initially in Manitowoc, and I had to do some commitment cases because you did everything up there because it was a small office. And I remember doing some of those, and I couldn't do them anymore. I actually had some some real, uh, I don't want to say PTSD kind of thing, but, you know, when I started looking at the statutes that were the sim- very, very similar statutes as to what I went through, I just, I just it, was, it was too close too for close me. To but it wasn't in Kentucky because it was a different system and it was far away physically. Lee was your only sibling. He was your older brother. Um, and you've mentioned that y- y- your your home was somewhat dysfunctional. That's yes. fair to say. In your book, after Lee's death, you said Lee was everything to you, that you would be nothing had it not been for him. Talk a little bit about that. What was your well, relationship like, especially in the early years? Oh, yeah. Well, see, my father wasn't really involved with us that much. He was gone a lot. He was a professor. He taught at different places. His only relationship with us was as a disciplinarian. He often engaged in physical discipline with us. Um, And my mother had her own mental health issues uh, relating to, she was paralyzed on the right side of her body from an assault that had occurred before we were ever born. And she had a stroke as a result of that. And so she was very paranoid herself, probably should have been treated in some way for it. Um, so we had that dysfunction, and my brother was the rational person, mm. ironically, wow. in that whole process. He was my mentor. He, he was the one that uh, got me to be an Eagle Scout. He was the one who taught me to read. He took the training wheels off my, my bicycle. He taught me how to throw a spiral. My dad had nothing to do with sports. My brother taught me those things. And uh, so my relationship with him was as a mentee to mentor, all right? But 
once my brother started to have more and more symptoms, that role changed where I was his mentor. I was the one that was counseling him. And that was a, a big change for me. And you talk about that in, in your book, the, the counseling sessions that you had oh. with Lee, that uh, you know, after, after things began to shift, your, your mother encouraged you to do that. Go talk to Lee. Go talk, talk some sense into Lee. Um, why do you think you felt that responsibility when you're so much younger than he, than he was? Well, part of it was my mother's pressure. Um, part of it was guilt. Part of it was I, I love my brother. And uh, I was genuinely uh, confused b about the way he was acting. I, when he started having symptoms fairly early on, but serious symptoms perhaps when he was 18 or 19 in that range, um, it just bothered me so much, you know, what he, what he was doing. He would have these get-rich-quick schemes. And I'd try to talk him out of it. I'd say, you don't have the money for that, or you don't have the training for that, you know. And I just didn't seem like it, it would work. He kept going back to these things. And, and um, I was very much concerned about him, but I didn't know what it was that was, was causing the problem. I was pretty young. You know, these things started happening when I was, I mean, when he was 12 years old, and I would have been f seven, he, he said he wanted to run away from home to hunt tropical fish in Florida. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And he said, I want to make a million dollars at it. He's 12 years old. He's 12 years old, and he left to do it. And, and then he came back because he didn't make it to Florida. And my dad's reaction was to scream at him and, you know, why are you doing this? And... And uh, he said, don't you realize you have an orthodontic appointment in a couple of days that you're going to miss? It was like, my dad was clueless. Wow. What, when, when was it that you looked at these grandiose ideas that he had? And this was just one of many. Right. And, and when did you realize that this was really a symptom of something being really wrong? Well, when my brother became extremely delusional about my mother and about um, that, that was, and he started having, assaulting her physically, assaulting my father physically. I was about, oh, I would say early part of my 19th year, you know, and I was at work at a restaurant called North Point Restaurant. I worked there during college in Stevens Point, and I was alone working one night, and uh, I decided to call someone about it. It was my college debate coach. His name was C.Y. Allen. And I, I called him at home and said, explain the situation. And he, he contacted the district attorney's office in Stevens Point. And they at least explained the procedure involved. And we got, um, at least I tried to get a commitment process started at that point. But it was at that point when I just was at wit's end. I, I thought he was going to literally, I, he could kill my mother. He tried to choke her several times, and my mother was defenseless. And I just, I just thought that I needed to do something or else um, what was going to happen was he, he, he might murder my mother. 
Is that a typical, are these typical symptoms that we're talking about, the grandiose thoughts and then the, the violent outbursts? Are, are those? Yes and no. Yeah, the, the grandiosity can be a symptom, the symptoms of perse- delusions of persecution. You know, my brother had that too. They're common symptoms. I don't know that violence is 100% a prerequisite of, of schizophrenia at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there are studies that show that family members are in danger at times from their schizophrenic uh, family members. But uh, I would say that it isn't necessarily true that people who are schizophrenic are violent, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my brother was. My brother assaulted a co-ed. He assaulted my mother and my father. He didn't assault me. He assaulted a nurse. He assaulted a social worker. He assaulted a cop. The list just goes on and on. And what happens with that is they don't... Usually the circumstances in which my brother did something like that was where the person was confronting him about his delusions. Oh. And that is what you don't do with a schizophrenic because that can result in a very violent response. And, you know, one time I came home from scout camp and my father had been beaten up and... um, I asked my father, what happened? Why did it happen? He said, my brother had this delusion about um, uh, ocean nodules that he was going to, uh, and he had called my uncle, who was an engineer, who he believed was involved in that kind of activity, you know, finding ocean, no- an ocean nodule might be oil or, mm-hmm. or some, something, you know, okay. uranium, I don't know. But at any rate... Um, it was in the middle of the night that he called my uncle on the phone and accused him of stealing his patented ideas about this or something. And my father then confronted him. Okay. And that's when he beat my father up. Okay. That's an wow. example of that. You're listening to Stevens Point author Kenneth Farmer. He's our guest today on Route 51, sharing the story behind his latest book. It's a memoir called Lee. It details his brother's struggle with schizophrenia and the fallout for the family that continues today. Your questions for our guests are welcome as well. E- email route51 at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen C. We're, we are discussing schizophrenia and its impact on families with Wisconsin author Ken Farmer. His memoir, Lee, details his brother's struggle with mental illness. And you can join in with your questions for our guest at Route 51 at WPR.org. Ken, we were talking about, you were working, you're working at a, at a place in Stevens Point and you reach out to your, your debate coach. And he tells you this: there's something really, really wrong, and you need to start this commitment process. What was your reaction? Did you want to push back and say, "No, no, no, it's not that bad"? 
actually, that was my reaction was one of fear. I, I just couldn't imagine um, confronting my brother with a, uh, a commitment process. There was just uh, too much uh, at stake for me. My brother was such an important mentor in my life, and I, I felt like I'd be turning on him and that he would never forgive me. The goal of the book has been to share the emotional impact schizophrenia had on your brother and your family. But at the end, you provide resources to help readers better understand the current mental health system, to better understand the disease itself. Um, I want to talk later about how schizophrenia is treated, but first I want to ask you about public policy and process. You said that learning about commitment laws and procedures is a really good place to start. And when you were confronted with this, it must have been so confusing and so scary. So take take us through the process you went through to have Lee committed the first time. Well, the first time um, my brother had gone off on a, a tirade where he thought that the organization called the Black Mafia was out to kill my family and as well as him. And uh, because he had observed some kind of drug transaction or something in Madison, and um, that's what caused me to do the petition. The petition required um, three adults to sign saying that my brother was mentally ill and, and dangerous. Um, and uh, so then we had to then have three people do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I was willing to sign it, my father was willing to sign it, and my mother wouldn't sign it. We had a family meeting, and my mother said, I'll never sign it. You'll ruin him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had to hunt around for a, a third signatory, and finally somebody came forward, uh, somebody that my um, dad knew, a colleague of his at the university. He taught at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, in the economics department. And so we did follow the, uh, the petition. That's the first thing that's required. Um, the substantive elements that we had to show were not only that, the, that my brother was mentally ill, but also that he was dangerous to himself or others, as shown by a recent overt act. Okay. And we had a recent overt act because during the, he came home one night and said we had to all get out of the house because the Black Mafia was coming to kill us. I got him out of the house, physically dragged him out of the house. He came back in the house because I didn't lock the door. And he had a tennis racket and he was swinging it at my mother. So that was our overt act. Sure. Um, and it related definitely to his mental illness. And so I, you know, that was what we had to show. And then eventually we ended up an agreement, which I can get into later if you want. But um, the process was that there would be a preliminary hearing after you filed that petition. It didn't used to be the case. When my brother's commitment uh, petition was filed, it was an initial one, was in 1975, in May of 75. A new case had come out called Lassard versus Schmidt, which was a class action suit out of Milwaukee in which uh, certain rights were guaranteed to the mentally ill, um, right to a preliminary hearing, the right to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, in fact, um, before a jury. Wow. Um, 
that the person wasn't did in fact was in fact mentally ill and dangerous, and there was a recent overt act, mm-hmm. and and so um, there were all these procedures that were quite new. In fact, if you research the law on Lassard, wasn't even in effect yet. Okay, it was it came down, but uh, it had not been um, finalized on appeal. And it took several years for that process. So really, it wasn't in effect, but the judge made us do that. There was also the 1975 Mental Health Act that, had, again, was passed by the legislature but wasn't effective yet. So the judge went along with the new stuff, figuring that was his best bet, but really, that wasn't the law. Okay. And and so we, so uh, my brother got a lawyer under Lassard. Mm-hmm. They appointed a public defender. They had nobody really to represent us. So he had an attorney, but you did not. No, we did not. Now, the reason for that is, and based on the 1971 procedure that was in effect, it was within the discretion of the court as to whether to have the district attorney's office involved. Apparently, and I say apparently because I wasn't a part of everything in this process, that didn't occur because there was nobody from the district attorney's office at the preliminary hearing, nobody there uh, during the course of negotiations with my brother's public defender. And so on the one hand, the judge followed the procedures under the new law. Mm-hmm. In 1975, the district attorney's office was required to do that. Okay. Later. Uh-huh. But there wasn't an effect yet. Uh-huh. So we kind of muddled through this without in the public muddle through this, because my brother was very dangerous, Mm -hmm. um, without having representation. And what ended up happening was on the first petition, we we agreed. It was like the devil's bargain, sort of. Okay. We we didn't want to go ahead with this, you know, if we didn't have to. So we agreed to him being in the hospital for 10 days in Madison, a mental hospital at the university hospital down there, mental mental ward. And the, the, the psychiatrist met with us, and he said, 10 days isn't enough to treat him. And plus, when he's done, he's not being committed. He's here on a voluntary basis. There will be no way to assure that he takes his medication or does his treatment once he gets out. So after 10 days, he could just pick up and go. Right. And so we said, well, they told us so we could file. Now, again, nobody represented us. They would, if there had been, we would never have agreed to that. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, he gets, um, you know, my brother goes off in the hospital, and my father says, what's wrong with, what's wrong with my son? And he says he has paranoid schizophrenia. He is, he's extremely dangerous. He might even be homicidal. And, and, and he says, there's nothing I can do for him other than try to get him on medication. But if he decompensates, we have nothing we can do to him because... And, and, and then my dad said, well, why can't we file a new petition? Because the recent overt act Shit. wasn't recent anymore. The thing he did with my mother with the tennis racket was too old. Oh. We'd have to wait for another one. And my father said, what are we supposed to do, wait till he kills someone? And the psychiatrist said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. What did that feel like to you? I was scared to death. Because I, I knew my brother. I knew all the things that he had done. And uh, at any rate, uh, we kind of just waited for it to happen. And it did. He was, um, 
he, he was living in a rooming house in Stevens Point. And what occurred was um, I would go over and visit him there. All right. Mm-hmm. And at the rooming house, what occurred was he wasn't there when I visited him one time, but the door was partially open and I could see that there was a shotgun in the corner of the room. My brother never hunted in his life. So this was unusual. It was very unusual. I went into the room thinking I was going to get the shotgun, and then I realized I wasn't going to take a shotgun with me. Uh-huh. And, and, and run was, through the rooming house with it? Right, mm-hmm. run through the rooming house with it. And so um, I um, noticed there was a box of shells. The, sh- the box of shells was full. So that meant that the shotgun was probably not loaded. And so I took the shells, and then I noted where the shotgun had been purchased at a, a sporting goods store called the Sports Shop in Stevens Point. Mm-hmm. My brother, keep in mind, was not involuntarily hospitalized or committed, which would have prohibited him from purchasing a shotgun. See, this is how the the procedure got screwed up. And so then what happened was um, I looked on the floor, saw the receipt for the shotgun, saw some writings of my brother, and the writings said, I live in the death house, conveniently located across the street from the funeral parlor. And I looked out the window and saw the Boston funeral home there, and I just froze. So we got another commitment petition going. This time we went to a jury trial on it. This time there was a district attorney appointed on it, and it was my first jury trial. Wow. And it was worse. I've tried capital cases, okay? I've tried murder cases. I've done everything. And there was no jury trial I had that was uh, involved as much stress is the one involving my own brother, where I was a witness. What happened at the end of that jury trial? He was committed? Yes, he was finally committed. The jury agreed, but I remember at the end, my father told me that they had agreed to it, and I said, what did Mom say? And, and, and he said that, <coughs> she said, such a waste. And I said, what do you mean, the commitment process or my brother's life? Both, I think. And I don't know, to this day, I, I still question. I think I did the right thing. I kind of led the charge on it to get my brother committed. And if I hadn't gotten that, basically those shells, I think that he would have killed somebody. And he didn't. But there was a part of me still that says, maybe my mother was right. You know, because. In the entire process afterwards, my brother did get manageable. He was managed in the system, but they never fixed his problem. And, and he engaged in more violent acts. And it, it just, you know, I, I guess I went into it with the expectation perhaps that they could do that, and, and really they couldn't. Is this something that can be fixed? I think it depends upon the case. Um, some schizophrenics have milder forms of that than others. Some aren't violent. Um, some, um, well, it depends on, on their family support and, and things like that. Um, I, I, I would say that it's very unlikely, at least in my experience, that it is something that can be cured. It can be managed. It, they can make it so the person doesn't have the delusions 
or has make it so they don't have hallucinations, but whether they can make it so they are a functioning, contributing individual in society that can live to their potential, I, I don't know that that's possible. So it can't be cured. It can perhaps be managed. But how difficult is it for the for the families? What kind of help is there for the families who are who are dealing with this and coping with the fallout? Oh yeah, that's that's a whole section of my book. It's called Coping with the Fallout. I um, certainly when we were going through the process, there was not that much support. Mm-hmm. I um, tried to call the social workers on it and they and asked them to call me back because I wanted to tell them about the rest of the problems in my family that contributed that exacerbated my brother's mental illness and they never called me back and that was upsetting to me it really was um, they have heavy caseloads but I thought that they could at least give me five minutes mm-hmm. um, but they didn't um, or Maybe they did once in the court process, but nothing to thoroughly discuss what was going on in my family as a result. Of this. Now, today, I think there's a lot better, more of an effort um, for families to be uh, given help, given resources to go to. There's the Alliance for the Mentally Ill, which is uh, a network for families that exist all over the country. There are chapters all over the state that they can go to, um, it's a lot better system, all right? The treatment system is a lot better than when we were involved in it initially. Now they have um, something called the uh, Community Support Program, which grew out of a program in, was started in Madison called the PAC program. In 1979, that's when it was started. But basically what that program is is mental health professionals go out to the homes to make sure that people are taking their medication. They have the authority and ability to administer medication to them so that they aren't committed as often, so that they, you know, so that they are basically treated in their own homes more. and it makes it less of a scary process for everybody involved. Now, the other part of it is they have a direct relationship with the patient. Mm-hmm. The family gets involved in this, and they're caught in the middle. It's like any domestic violence situation, whatever. You know, with domestic violence, you can't expect the victim to cooperate in many cases. And that was the same thing with our family. That's the same thing with many families that suffer this. And so if you involve them, they're caught in the middle between loving that person and fearing that person. And that's a heck of a bind to be in. And so they don't necessarily want to be involved in this. And so if you have that direct relationship, you can circumvent that. And I think that uh, the community support program, which has been enforced or done throughout the state, Uh, for some years has been uh, a good thing. I wish that was in existence more when we were going through it. I have to wonder, you know, you had this complex family situation as well as having a a, a brother with serious mental health issues. How did you take care of yourself? 
Did you? No, I, I sometimes neglected myself. I, I really wanted to go to college, for example, elsewhere. Um, I was into debate. I could have gone to Eau Claire. They had an excellent national-level debate program there. I stayed at home and went to school at home. I stayed at home at my house for a while until I moved out. Yeah, until I just got so sick of it, I couldn't deal with it. You made those deliberate choices. I'm going to stay yes, home. I, I'm, I'm, yes, yeah. you worked two jobs. You I worked two jobs. You did all these things, and your family was supporting Lee right. financially. I mean, how how do you how do you feel about that now? Well, I think that now I feel like my parents did the best they could. They had to give more attention to my brother because he needed it, okay? At the time, I was pretty angry about it. Um, but I feel like, um, in general, that my parents did, given what they had to work with, they did the best that they could for my brother. Um, I just wish that, you know, my own reaction, my own personal reaction wasn't the best. I mean, I became like family hero, which is another kind of thing that happens. I, there was no margin for error for me, and I needed to give myself a break. I had to go to law school. I had to do well in law school. I had to have a job. I couldn't make mistakes, you see. And it also made me just afraid to have a family, to have children, because I didn't know if they turned out likely. I could not go through that again in my own family. It's an awful lot of pressure Lee uh, had to put on you. And Ken, for you to, you know, it, I can hear it in your voice now mm -hmm. that even today, mm -hmm. it's, still, it's still affecting you today. It, it still bothers me. Ken Farmer is our guest today on Route 51 discussing his new memoir, Lee. It is a book that describes what it was like to lose his older brother to schizophrenia. Ken is from Stevens Point. He is also a retired prosecutor and public defender and will stay with us. What would you like to know? You can email questions to us, route51 at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward with our guest, Kenneth Farmer. He is a retired prosecutor and public defender now the author of three books. His latest, Lee, is a heartbreaking memoir. It describes his family's experience dealing with schizophrenia and his brother's battle with the disease. Your questions are welcome, too. Email route51 at wpr.org. Ken, when you finally made the decision to write this book, was it healing to you in some ways? I think so. Um, yes and no, for the most part. The, it was healing because I was able to express myself, and the whole process is healing because people come up to me and say, you know, I didn't realize that you had been going through this, you know, and, and, it, and it feels a lot better as a result of it because at the time, no one seemed to care, and now they do, mm -hmm. and, and that, that, was, that was good. The bad part of it is, is at least when I wrote it, when you write a memoir, you're pretty much exposing your life to, to the public. And um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. It can be a good thing. 
it can be a bad thing. As far as my own, it gets you in a process of thinking about your life. You know, not just in terms of the memoir subject, but any subject in your life. And I, and I, as a result of writing this, I've looked at all the things I've done wrong in my life, all the things I could have done better, all the regrets I've had. And perhaps I should have let those things go. You know, a lot of times we forget those things. And so it doesn't bother us anymore. But by writing a memoir, it gets your brain in a remembering kind of thing. Brings it all back. It brings everything back, not just the subject you're dealing with. So there's a price for that. There really is. There was. And it, I was just, but I think at a certain point, maybe it's better that you learn to let those things go. And part of the process of doing that is to, is to confront it. I'm curious about the research you did on this book. You couldn't rely on just your own memories. So how, how did you put this together? What did you rely on? Oh, it took four years to write the book. Um, I, uh, I, I looked at uh, legal resources, first of all. Um, I re- researched the statues. That's my training. I, I, get, I went through all my family records um, it, that I had on, on the case. I tried to get the mental health authorities to cooperate, and they wouldn't because they can't. Um, they're not allowed to get into these kinds of issues, so I couldn't get those records, but I had some of those records that were sent to our family during the process. I went through records of my family and discovered many things about my family and discovered that my aunt had schizophrenia. I, I, I went and uh, looked through and found out why my mother had been paralyzed, because she never told us. You grew up not knowing. Not knowing why. They just lied, said it was something else, and it was to do with a boyfriend that had assaulted my, my mother, and I think she, her head was hit in the process, and there was some kind of concomitant stroke, so she had lateral paralysis all right, over her entire body. And uh, so that kind of explained things. Yeah, how did that shift your thinking with regard to your mom and 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 how she handled all of this as you were going through well, it? Well, I always obviously had a tremendous amount of respect for my mother to be able to overcome it, regardless of what the cause was. But when I was early, when I was young, I didn't even see her as having anything wrong with her. Mm-hmm. That was what was so strange about it. But as time went on, I knew... And, but how it affected my thinking was that um, I guess I felt that uh, she was definitely wronged in life and that this somehow maybe explained some of her reasons for not wanting to commit my brother. See, because she had her life, part of her life at least, taken away from her by somebody that, you know, was thoughtless. Okay, and and now she didn't want to do the same thing with her own son. She was her life was taken away from her in the prime of life. She was a straight A student. She was beautiful. She had all these things going for her, and it was taken away from her. She did not want to see that happen to my brother. Your attitudes about your dad seem to change over the years too. I mean, in the beginning, he was far apart from what was going on at home. 
but then he became your ally when you were working through the commitment <clears throat> process. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, since my mother wouldn't sign the petition, we had to work together. And um, I think that he changed quite a bit from being uh, this, you know, extremely explosive and violent individual with us to a person who um, wanted to get something done. And that he, he actually showed a lot of love for me as well as my brother and my mother. And uh, I, I just had gained a lot more respect for him by becoming um, an ally with him. I had to work with him, though, because mm -hmm. my mother wouldn't help, and uh, that was the only way that we could get through it. But we had that in common, whereas before we had little in common. Sure. You mentioned, too, something that uh, caught my attention, that you had another family member with schizophrenia. You learned that later when you were doing the research about this. Right. Did that give you a sense of relief in a way that is uh, that there's there was something else going on here that there might be a familial link? Yeah, um, to a certain degree, because it gave me understanding of why it happened. But there were elements of her disease that were different than my brother's. She was able to function. She was still a professor at Illinois State University, so it wasn't like she was debilitated the way my brother was. Mm -hmm. So I was unsure, maybe I was in denial, that it, she really was that badly mentally ill, mm -hmm. all right? But it did kind of went, open my eyes, and I started reflecting about, well, maybe there is a genetic component. Now, wait a minute, my mother, she's so paranoid. She has all these paranoid ideas herself at times about the neighbors. She would get in disputes with the neighbors, constantly setting foot on her property, accuse her relatives of stealing things from her mother and everything. So I thought, well, maybe there is something to this. And so I guess I was, as a result of coming, stumbling across that, I was very confused as to whether it was or was not a genetic condition that my brother had. There were lots of reasons for him that were environmental. My father's being violent, that's not a good thing. That perhaps contributed to the violent aspect of him. Mm -hmm. But then I wasn't really that way. Um, my mother's paranoia, maybe he was following her example environmentally. You know, that was the model that my father modeled violence, my mother modeled paranoia. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't clear. I guess I became even more confused than I was before. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any relief really at, at all. I became more confused. You talk about your, uh, you know, your family members, and you know, Lee. Lee has this. You're you're wondering about your mother. Did you ever wonder why why Lee and why not me? I mean, yeah. how 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 is it that that right? Of course, I. Yeah. It, it could have been the other way around, and, and in a way, there's a certain measure of uh, catharsis as a result of that because you say, well, I guess I was blessed about something. Mm -hmm. We are talking with Ken Farmer about his book called Lee, and we did have an email from Betsy who is wondering how she can get the book. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have a website, uh, KenFarmerWrites.com, writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, KenFarmerWrites.com. It can be ordered um, through, there are purchase links on there. If you want an autographed copy, there's a link for that. Um, if you want to have a hardcover copy, you probably have to go through my publisher, but there's a link. You just click on the link, and, and it'll show you how to go about getting the book. All right, KenFarmerWrites.com. We'll also have a link um, at WPR.org slash Route 51 uh, for people who want to get a copy of the book, um, Lee. Does a person with schizophrenia know they have it? Did, did your brother know that something was wrong with him? You know, that's very interesting. At, at first, I don't think he did. But as the process went on, um, he eventually got in the right level of structure, which was a group home here in Wausau, actually. It was called the Sullivan House. I'm not sure if it still exists. But um, at any rate, um, I remember my brother died of lung cancer. And I, the group home had kind of went to see my brother after he had died at the hospital here. And uh, we're riding up in the elevator, and he said, you know, and I liked your brother. And I said, well, I love my brother. You know, it's, it's just, it was just really sad. He goes, you know, your brother finally realized that he was sick. He did. He was not even under a commitment anymore for years and years and years here. He was here on a voluntary basis. So he knew. He knew. And that was the beauty of it. In a way, over time, people can, that are, have this affliction can learn to accept it and deal with it. And he did. He could, you know, he could come and go as he pleased at this group home. He didn't. There wasn't any, any requirement that he be there legally, but he chose to be there. He had friends there. You know, th that was what was so odd about it. You know, sometimes they put people in environments where they call it independent living or whatever. You know, the, that's, that's not necessarily a good thing, mm -hmm. you know. People need, that are schizophrenic need to have human contact, and the group home allowed that, okay, for my brother. When he died, you were surprised to learn how he touched the lives of other people. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, initially, I mean, it's like, what do I do for a funeral for my brother who's schizophrenic, who right. I don't think has any friends or any... My parents were already dead. Uh, I mean, what, what, you know, so I really didn't do anything. I just had them appropriately buried by my parents and, you know, did made the proper arrangements. And I got a call a few weeks later, and uh, it was from the same group home director. He says, are you doing anything for your brother's funeral? And I said, well, not really. Uh, he says, well, we want to do a, a tribute or a funeral for him here at the group home. And so... You know, then we, I went there, we did it, and all the members of the group home were there. And then we all sat in a circle, and he said, a chance to say what? Something about my brother. And I just learned about all the ones that said good things about my brother. You know, you know my brother taught them things in the way that he taught me things. So it was familiar to me. You know, one of them said, he taught me what a pluribus unum meant. 
Another one said he taught me how to play chess, which he did for me. And so it kind of brought me back, and I was proud of my brother for once. Ken, we have about a minute left in our time together, and mm -hmm. what final advice do you have for someone who's listening, whose family member is struggling with this, and they're coping with the same kinds of things that you have gone through? What advice do you have for them? Well, I think that there's one thing I would do is I would try to become as informed as I possibly could. And now there are many resources. I cite some of them at the end of the book. Um, that talk about how families can survive schizophrenia. By becoming informed, you understand it better. They give you outlets better. I would say that would be number one. Do some reading and research on your own because there's a lot out there that wasn't out there when I was dealing with it. Secondly, I think it's real important to become involved in support groups that deal with the problem. There's the Alliance for the Mentally Ill, is an example, they have chapters throughout the state. They have annual conferences in every state of the country. And uh, they not only can provide information, but they can provide support. And Because there are people that are involved in that that are going through the same thing. Ken, thank you so much for being here, for sharing this with us. I, I just can't thank you enough. Great. Thank you. This is Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Once again, a sincere thanks to our guest, Kenneth Farmer. The book can be found at KenFarmerWrites.com. Our producer is Joy Ratch Kramer. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Rick is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. Special music today from Red. The archive of today's program can be found at WPR.org slash Route 51. We'll be back next week, and we hope you join us. I tried so hard